welcome back to the home front history podcast now thanks so much everyone for your well-wishing your following your listenership um it's amazing yeah unbelievable <laughs> well chopped yeah i know we're really we're, good we're as happy as larry whoever larry yeah. is um, <laughs> member of the home guard oh yeah larry yeah <laughs> exactly so this week we're off in our first proper episode um this week chris is going to be telling us all about the regular and the territorial army and their role in home defense so chris without further ado take it away right uh yeah cheers robbie thanks for that yeah so um yeah this is my turn this week so of those of you who follow me on Twitter, uh, well, now I bang on endless, endlessly about the um, the forgotten role of the TAs and the regulars, and I've kind of like titled this um, this week's podcast episode "Remember the Regulars" with a question mark on the end. What's really cool about this podcast is each of us has um, a kind of specialism in the various aspects of the various forces of the um, Second World War anti-invasion defences, in particular the uh, home front and the home forces, which gives us quite a unique perspective or different perspectives from the various fighting forces that were actually involved in defending the country during the Second World War. So everyone's heard about the Home Guard and a lot of people have heard about the auxiliary units, but very, very few people have heard about the uh, regulars or the territorial army, which is massively surprising given that they were right at the forefront of the defence. There were something like 24 divisions deployed in the UK on home, home defence from the regulars and territorial army units, and today they get pretty much no looking at all which is really really bloody odd um you know you don't get any other section of the second world war where the primary fighting unit is ignored it is absolutely odd before we get into it why do you think they are ignored is it is it because the home guard let's blame dad's army here has uh, yeah, had I, such I, I has had such it. precedent has had such precedent over the, it's a more romantic story more little yeah. ships dunkirk home guard that's much more romantic than actually trained troops with, with weapons. I think so. Yeah, there's that aspect. And obviously you can blame Dad's army. I think you also have the aspect of the Home Guard were local and those stories stay locally. And they were there for the duration, weren't they? They were there for the duration. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think that's what it is. And obviously Dad's army has taken its toll. In fact, one thing I was just um, was going to mention as well is the, the odd thing is that kind of immediately post-war, the role of the uh, regulars and the TAs, you know, was being highlighted and focused on within the narrative. So the official published history um, of the Second World War, you know, anti-invasion defences by Captain G.C. Wynne, for example, in published in 1948, not long after the uh, um, end of the Second World War, focuses heavily on the regulars and the TAs and their role, as it should do. And then you get Collier in 1957, you know, who has done a massive amount of work, which, again, highlights the role of the regulars and the TAs alongside um, the Home Guard, as it should have been. And then it's after this period, around when Dad's army comes in, that that storyline seems to drop off. So I think it's, you know, it's a very multifaceted and kind of nuanced thing, but I, I like to blame Dad's army. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, I, I genuinely, genuinely think it is because the stories of the Home Guard stayed, stayed local and the, the units of the regulars and TAs would often come into an area and then move on or go elsewhere, deployed across the globe. And the um, if they were fighting in Normandy, for example, the stories of them sat on the home front for two years weren't necessarily as interesting as what was going on yeah, um, yeah. elsewhere. I also think yeah. people think that the British Army is away fighting, so it can't yeah. be in England, it can't be in Britain to defend it because it's fighting in the desert or the jungle or wherever, yeah. So maybe or, that's or, the reason it, it gets or the, forgotten. Or or they've come back and they've they've got no weapon. 
Great, yeah. the British Army was in it was in France, right? And and then we evacuated yeah. most of them, but they come back with no weapons, therefore they were useless. Come back with no weapons, and then they they go off and have a nice holiday and spend a couple of years, you know, recuperating and <laughs> starting to feel better about uh, losing. They're not prepping or, or like re-equipping to fight a war or anything like that. Like. <laughs> no, exactly. No, you know. Um, but that does actually bring us on right, rather nicely to who were the regulars and the territorials. So in most cases, people know about the role of these units when they were fighting elsewhere, fighting abroad, fighting across the world. But yeah, oddly, when they come back home and start on home defence, they're relatively forgotten. So yeah, throughout this, I'm going to say regs and TAs because it's easier than saying regulars and territorial each time. But these were essentially the backbone of the British Army. You know, these were the primary fighting force of the country as they as they are today. You know, you've got your... Uh, your regular army, and you've got your territorial army. So the army essentially comprised, as it does today, of the infantry, you know, your armoured units, engineers, signals, cavalry, and artillery. It wasn't just the infantry on the ground. It was a whole gamut of um, fighting units that made up the army, as as it does today. But I generally sum up the roles of the regulars and the TAs um, in two terms. So the regulars are your full-time soldiers. These are your professional soldiers. It is their career to be a soldier. They do that from, you know, all day long is their job. Um and especially in terms of the regular army, you know, at the time in uh, the 1940s, their role was um, defined generally um, as defending the UK, which was home defence, which is the term we use today. And uh, their other role was in empire, if I can say, empire defence. So their role is to essentially act as like a kind of a police force for policing the empire, but also as well protecting the uh, overseas bases of the Royal Navy. So obviously the Royal Navy was the kind of like big superpower of um of uh, britain in terms of overseas power and it was the role of the army on the ground to defend places like the multi malta garrison and things like that and that was the key role of the regular regulars overseas and obviously in times of war they were deployed to do the fighting overseas and elsewhere but their key key roles were home defense which everyone forgets and empire defense mm. so two very simple roles um, it's interesting as well when we come on to the TAs to consider that the regular army themselves had a, been around for about 300 years at the time, which is pretty pretty interesting in 1940. While the TA were generally much more modern, they were formed in 1908, which I personally, when I, before I started researching this, I assumed they were at least, you know, late Victorian Boer War type periods. So I didn't mm. know they were relatively recent as that. But you can define the territorials as essentially part-time soldiers. They do it on a on a weekend alongside their um, you know day-to-day occup- occupation. You know they've been training on the weekends, going back to the work Monday to Friday, and you know um, could be uh, seen to undertake their role as a soldier part-time. But again, with the TAs, their role was also home defence alongside the regulars, which is a key thing to point out. Another key um, aspect of their role as well was defending communications, which is something you don't generally think about, is the defence of the military communication network, which is really quite interesting. Mm. And then finally, their kind of like key role was to uh, support the regulars, especially in times of emergency or war. So by calling up the troops, the TA, they could bolster the numbers of the regular army, which is exactly what they did in the First World War and the Second World War, was to build the standing numbers of uh, soldiers available by calling up your TA forces, starting to implement conscription, um, the national service as well. And that re- relatively rapidly raised the numbers of available troops during the Second World War. And that's kind of like key to the roles of both of these forces. I guess the, the beauty of the TAs is if you're bringing, if you're at a time of war, you can quickly bring in pretty much trained troops 
straight into the regulars yeah, without exactly so, so you've got conscription where you're calling up people who've never been in the army before and that's gonna yeah. that that takes training and you've got to start from scratch with those guys whereas exactly. these guys are already it's halfway there reserve, isn't it? they know how to you know they know how to square bash they know how to do ball yeah you know all they all they wait for and this is the problem we see with the um with the home forces, the supply of weapons, the supply of equipment, but they, these soldiers are already trained, like you say, Andy, and you can just bring them straight up and get them up to speed um, as fully trained soldiers relatively quickly, which is a pretty interesting and useful system. You know, it's um, it's like having a subs bench. Yeah, yeah exactly that. Exactly that. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. Um, and because both the regs and the TAs were, you know, their prime role was at the end of the day home defence. This is why they were deployed in the UK on defence. Um, I am going to. Uh, right at the end, plug a couple of useful sources of information which people can use to find more information out about this. Because, you know, if we can produce like a bit of a reading list, maybe it gives people. Yeah, um, that's a very good idea. You know, I've got a couple of books that people can go out and buy. And these are, they're not, I'm not going to be recommending people go out and buy like some of the books that I've got, which are like 200 quid. These are, <laughs> these are concrete Chris approved, you know, cheap book, Yorkshireman books that you can buy off the internet. Um <laughs> But if you're wanting to find out more about the wider role of the regulars and the territorials, I recommend um, at the beginning, George Forty's British Army Handbook 939 to 45. That is just is literally the Bible. It's got literally everything you need to know about the British Army and the Commonwealth forces uh, during the Second World War. So do check that out online. Uh, I do recommend that. You'll find out a lot more information. Um, so that's kind of like a brief introduction of um, who the regulars and the territorials are. But we can clearly see already that both of these forces were geared up for defence on the home front, which is the key part of um, anti-invasion defence, as it was during the Second World War. Yeah. So I thought next, let's have a look at what their role was kind of historically and in the home force. This could be kind of like very a very, very broad overview, and I'm going to go into this in more detail uh, later. Um, so as I've already mentioned, the regs and the TAs have slightly different roles historically. You know, uh, one's your full-time army, your other's uh, your kind of temporary part-time army that would operate in times of war or emergencies and this these two roles remain standard during the second world war um as we all know you know by 1940 the british expeditionary force or the bef uh, for short which is a lot easier to say um <laughs> had been you know formed uh, at the outbreak of war in 1939 to send soldiers to france in anticipation of what was seen as um an imminent invasion following the fall of poland um and you know units of the BEF were quickly handed over to um to uh defend you know and not the marginal line itself but the uh section um they forgot the to build on belgium the bit that we've got to build on um <laughs> another plug um i'll have to find it later but uh dave thurlow's the gort line is a fantastic book and i've been plugging that on twitter it's a fantastic book and although it doesn't cover the home front it gives you that basis for the concrete defenses in the uk fantastic piece of research by dave and yeah it's a fantastic well-researched book yeah the bef went off to um france to counter the immediate invasion or what was seen as an imminent threat and although not the focus of this podcast it needs to be mentioned in terms of context because um the units of the baf uh, were also regular and ta units and they were deployed in france um uh, but also in contrast with that, in terms of the home forces, we also have regular and TA units deployed within the UK at the out- well within a month of the outbreak of war to fulfill this fulfill this role of uh, home defence, um, and this was allotted again to both the regulars and the TAs. It wasn't just the TAs doing the home defence um, from the outbreak of war; it was both of these units. 
So um, we see the Home Force essentially re-established at the outbreak of war in September 1939 to undertake this role of home defence. And although everyone kind of like knows about the invasion threat in 1940, very few people know that the invasion threat essentially started in 1939 within a month of the outbreak of war. There was a common fear that, um, you know, as in the First World War, that the invading force would appear almost instantly out of nowhere and that would be the end of the war. And, you know, the Home Forces were uh, coordinated by the Commander-in-Chief of Home Forces, um, and I think if we do an episode on these later as well, it, it allow us to go into more detail about the various commanders in chiefs and their various um, roles and ways they approach the problems. But essentially, their role was to um, coordinate the training and equipping of or equipment of units deployed within the home force in the UK. And if needs be, they had the additional role of coordinating the defence of the UK as well. So quite a broad overview of things that they had to do. It was mainly focused around initially training and administrating the units in the UK. But again, this uh, caveat there is that they were responsible for coordinating defence, which was a key role of the regs and the TAs. Obviously, upon the fall of France, the units of the BEF were evacuated um, from mainland France during operations Dynamo, which is the Dunkirk evacuation, but also the two forgotten ones, uh, which are Operation Aerial and Operation Cycle. So, Dynamo, um, the Dunkirk evacuation, which is known by pretty much everyone, but wasn't actually the final uh, evacuation. There were multiple evacuations from ports in northern and western France, which go for gone today. And there were even cases of landing troops back in France after Dunkirk had been evacuated to continue the fighting. So yeah. the fighting in yeah, France yeah. continued for two more weeks. And I don't understand. I've never understood why Dunkirk is seen as the end when you've got this two-week period after. It's the little, little, it's the little ships. ships. Little ships, films, popular memory. Yeah, everything else. It's worth mentioning. It's not, you know, not home front, but actually, most of the we got, you know, that hundreds of thousands of Brits off, but we also got hundreds of thousands of Allied troops yeah. off as well. And most of the French went back to fight. Yeah, exactly. so the, French, the French have got this thing of, you know, running away, uh, cheese eating surrender monkeys, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but actually, but actually, they, they deploy most, of them, most of them deploy back to, to, yeah. to fight. So anyway, that's not that's not British, but 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 worth mentioning. I think. It's worth mentioning. Yeah. And like I say, I always like to mention that because, you know, the subsequent operations of aerial and cycle are massively key to this period. And it shows, mm. you know, um, I don't know whether this is true, but I've heard that the Germans suffer most of their casualties in that two week period after Dunkirk. Interesting. You know, um, I need to to look into that. So don't take, don't quote me on that. But that's an interesting fact as well. What to do in an air raid? Get undercover at once. So the figures we have for Dunkirk in terms of the number of British troops taken off. Yeah. What is, what we look what we looking 300, at 300,000 give or yeah. take I, yeah. um one thing i uh, want to look into uh, later today is the figures of um i want to look at how many soldiers were in the regulars and the tas at the outbreak of war how many after dunkirk and the fall of france um yeah but I because I, about, I, yeah it fluctuates I, yeah and I, I wonder whether so we talk about 300,000 say Brit, Brit, british and allied or just british do you think i think it was just british i'd have to just double british. check that yeah so so we're saying about about that number just at Dunkirk, and that, I think that's the a lot of people base their assumption on the number of British troops, therefore back in back in the UK at, at three hundred thousand. Yes, right. That, exactly. That, yeah. Three hundred thousand were in Dunkirk. They got back to Britain. That's all we've got. So it'll be really interesting to find out like, how a small number as well. Well, yeah. In fact, if one, exactly. that's a small yeah. number, but two, you've got two other evacuations to take into account as well. Exactly. Right. You've yeah. got you've got you've yeah. got two others plus the ones that are already there placed by Kirk. 
So yeah. you've got you've already got twelve divisions in the UK on home defence before another twelve divisions come back. Mm. Yeah. So this the number of three hundred thousand evacuated from Dunkirk does not represent the total number of troops. And that number of troops you've evacuated from Dunkirk were their own thing. It's, yes. I think we need to make the obviously from this episode we are, but you're making the distinction from that expeditionary force is a is its own yeah. thing. It's not meant it's its own thing. to defend the nation. Exactly. No. The home we didn't send we didn't send everything to France. No. <laughs> no. Right. Exactly. Right, that. lads, go. Go. go yeah. Off we'll you go. Oh, quick, come back. There wasn't quick. some I mean, clerk twiddling his thumbs being like, where's everyone gone? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, there was, there was, I, I make my job easier. I'll just send everyone to France and I'll just sit back yeah. for a couple of months. Yeah. yeah. I mean we'll we'll get into another episode, but as, as you said, but Kirk did have a certain amount of attack is the best form of defense, and so he did whack a fair few over. Uh and and, yeah. and maybe did didn't have so many in debt, but that's still you know we need to i think like this is why i think we if we do an episode on the actual numbers i think that'll give us a better perspective mm. when we take into account the home guard and the auxiliary units alongside the regs and tas and all those numbers i think that well, gives sing, us a... sing it in context chris surely not <laughs> no no well okay let's just look at the <laughs> home guard then let's just uh, silo him silo him just look at yeah. him in isolation that's a much okay, better let's do let's do that yeah everyone else does that <laughs> um, so yeah, just a kind of like very broad overview of their tasks as of uh, 1940. You know, um, the regular units, as we've already mentioned, were deployed in the UK and as part of the BEF. And at the outbreak of war, obviously in 1939, this was before the local defence volunteers slash Home Guard were formed. So we had these this body of troops mm. ready to go under the Julius Caesar plan developed by Kirk before the Home Guard had even been envisaged. And yeah. like a, as we've always just just mentioned, you know, there were 12 divisions in the UK already. On home defence, there were an additional twelve in France as the BEF. You know that's a, a relatively large number of troops on home defence itself, and this is something to take into put into perspective in terms of the regs and the TAs. If you're cutting out their story, you're cutting out twelve bloody divisions. You know mm-hmm. of, yeah. uh, of the regular yeah, yeah, army, yeah. which is yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't remember exactly how many it is, but it's a, it's like maybe three hundred three. It might be three hundred thirty thousand, let's say. Well, Which is just, you know, after don't again, don't quote me on that because I'm terrible with maths anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, with that out of the way, let's have a look at the kind of like broad timeline of de- uh, their deployment. So, obviously, putting these things into context in a chronological order is always quite a useful thing. But the thing I always point out with this is there's not one a one size fits all narrative, you know, given each division was essentially different in how it operated or where it was operating and how it was operated, mm. these stories are different at a divisional level. So as an archaeologist, the best way to approach this from an archaeological perspective I've found over the years um, is by looking at a county or a sub-county area. So you get a better idea of what's going on. And I think yeah. in terms of history, if you looked at a division or division and below, I think that would give you a really good indication of what was going on at a local level. So you've got archaeologically look at a defined section of landscape and historically look at a defined unit, um, mm. yeah. which I think is the way to do it. So uh obviously you know everyone knows about the um kind of like known invasion threat period of 1940 onwards but as i've already hinted at with kirk and the um formation of the home force in 1939 and the julius caesar plan things started much earlier pretty much at the outbreak of war with troops deployed across the uk on coastal defense because the threat was from ports in northern germany in particular to east anglia and this was east anglia gets ignored in relation to the South Coast in uh, 1940, but East Anglia was the place where they expected the invasion threat to come. Mm. Uh, you know, and obviously after the fall of Denmark and Norway in April, May 1940, the whole of the East Coast becomes vulnerable to attack 
from Norway, Denmark, northern ports in Germany. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it start, what we see is throughout 1940, the early part of 1940, that entire stretch of coast and eventually the entire coastline becomes vulnerable to invasion. So following um, the um, fall of Norway, um, there's a key worry because Norway is only 300 uh, miles away from the Shetland Islands. The, the Shetlands are a very key point of uh, invasions. And the idea is that the German might set sail from Norway, capture the Shetland Isles, push down through Scapa Flow and through Scotland, which is a key worry. Mm. So they send troops up there. The Shetland Isles are some of the first places to receive anti-invasion defences of the Second World War. Um, there's some really nice um, IWM images of uh, Shetlanders on the beach digging uh, sand up for sandbags. In nineteen forty, we'll share those on the Twitter. Yeah, was, I got them. Um, was she- somewhere was it Shetlands or Orkneys that was the first place to be bombed? Uh, I think it was Sumbra uh, in Shetland. Shetlands I think it was the Shetlands. airport. Yeah, I think it was Shetland. Yeah, I have to double check that. I think it was the yeah. Given Shetland's quite relatively close, yeah, I have to double double check that. Um, but yeah, as a result of you know, the fall of Norway and Denmark, you know, I think it was about a brigade was sent up to Shetland, a brigade of infantry, the regulars or TAs were sent up there. And then in kind of mid-1940, you know, it all kicks off with the uh, fight in the Lowlands and the fall of France, where at this point, pretty much the entire coastline becomes vulnerable to... Sorry, I'm doing hand actions here, and I need to remember that this is... Uh, this <laughs> People aren't going to be able to see my gestures and my impressive hand actions. Um, his, his cradle is fantastic, if you know what that is. Lecture's oh, thank you, yeah. That, yeah. That. <laughs> so imagine the uh, the coastline of the UK. Following the fall of France, um, the entirety of the coast, northeast, south, and west, uh, became vulnerable to invasion. Um, so one of the key worries was uh, after the fall of France. Obviously, the south coast is uh, vulnerable to invasion, but there's an additional worry that uh, the Germans might try and attack um, Neutral Ireland and Northern Ireland, capture you know Ireland, and push into the country from the west coast. So the real situation in 1940 is that the entirety of the coastline is vulnerable to invasion or there's sections of beach which are vulnerable which were would have been suitable for you know landing afvs tanks you know armor fighting vehicles infantry fighting vehicles and the like so the real situation is in 1940 the entirety of the coastline is vulnerable to invasion and it's Mm. not the home guard that are deployed to defend this is the regulars and the tas this is their job is to uh, defend you know is home defense and again this is forgotten today despite them being at the forefront of defense um, so I like to, you know, one of the things I've started to toy with is, is this idea that not only are the regulars the first line of defence, they're also the last line of defence as well. And you've got the kind of home guard sandwiched in between. Mm. And we'll look at this, you know, in a bit more detail in a bit. Um, but the key point that we always keep on making is that, you know, the regulars and the TAs are just one part of a wider defensive network. They, yeah. They're just one component of a cohesive defensive network, which was very well planned, well coordinated, and had multiple arms of multiple armed services, which is, you know, we need to keep on plugging that. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, yeah, the regs and the TAs were deployed across the UK in defence of the entire country, the coastline in particular, but also in land areas, you know, and the, um, from the outbreak of war for the first, let's say, nine months of the war, this con- comprised of 12 divisions. Following the fall of France, those divisions of the BEF, which were evacuated, were incorporated into the home forces and bolstered their, you know, pretty much doubled the number of divisions available for defence of the UK, which is massive, really. Mm. I can't remember how long the coastline is, and I'm not going to make a guess at it because I'll mess it up, but 12 miles. Yeah. 
<laughs> the, 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 uh, you know, 12, 12 miles of coastline. Brace the, uh, the, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, had to be defended by 24 divisions. Um, so, yeah, we know about the coastal defences, but it wasn't just the coastal defences uh, or the defence of the coast that the regulars and TAs were um, tasked with. It was also the myriad of important inland vulnerable points and nodal points, as well as the stop lines initially that they had to defend as well. So, yeah, coastal defence was the TAs, inland defence was the TAs and the regulars, sorry. Um, you know, and they were tasked with defending major towns and cities, river crossings, crossroads, places where the road and rail network converged, because the key aim of the defences was to deny um, fast access through the country by the road and rail network to yep. infantry fighting vehicles have been the case it's in France. It's so exactly the... So to, to cut you in there, but it's, it's exactly no, how... Right. It's exactly the sort of infrastructure that the home service force were brought in to defend yeah. in the 80s. Like, it's the exact same. Oh, really? Just quickly, they have adverts that say you could defend your local, uh, like, uh, switchboard or your local train bridge or, yeah. you know, a point of that could be used for an invasion yeah. by an invasion force. That's what, that's what they're sold on. Exactly that. Yeah. And it's all about denying that to, to the enemy because that's how they could push inland and quickly overwhelm exactly. you know, the defenders. Um, and it's also as well the areas where um, uh, paratroops could drop. So although this is uh, often associated with the Home Guard, you know, around here we've got um, down on the other side of Thetford, I can't remember the name of it, near Brandon, that's it. You've got two massive open fields, and today they are crisscrossed by anti-landing trenches, and there's two pillboxes there. They are pillboxes that the regular and TA forces would have used to defend that area from paratroopers and also the landing of aircraft. So everyone goes, oh, yes, gliders would land in this field. It's not just gliders, it's powered aircraft as well. There's a key worry, as was the case in Belgium um, and um, the other low countries, that they would land Junkers 52s, disgorge the troops, take off and continue yeah. to bring those supplies in, in the, without having the need of an airport. Yeah. Um, so everyone, the gliders got all the attention. It wasn't just gliders, it was... A, powered aircraft as well they could just constantly bring in supplies of troops that were a key uh, key priority of the regulars and the tas so again a lot of this infrastructure that was defended is now associated with the defense of the home guard um but it wasn't until much later in the war that the home guard took on responsibility for defending such places yeah. in 1940 and 41 yeah because yeah. uh, no, exactly this is exactly where the thing where you not mentioning the Home Guard at this point is actually quite useful because the Home Guard don't have, one, they don't have the infrastructure, two, they do, they definitely don't have the weaponry or the training. Exactly. You know, exactly. They, they don't just they, they don't just get created in April 1940 and, and then, then just get magically a, a big fighting unit. They're not. The regular army would have been doing the bulk of the work. Even in... Exactly. It, like if sea line had happened in September 1940, the regular army still would have been doing the bulk of the defending because... You know, the Home Guard still at that point still weren't an effective force. Really. Well, and also, and also, yeah. frankly, there there wasn't a great, frankly, there wasn't a lot else for the regulars to be doing at that point. Really, <laughs> really, really. Yeah. I mean, there's there's yeah. there's, there's bits unless of you're in, doing in unless Africa, you're in the desert in Libya yeah. or somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Really. Well, in forty, yeah. And it wasn't until that point where we were becoming much more aggressive and proactive in the war mm. that actually yeah. those regular troops could then be taken off to other parts to fight. Where, wherever it might be, that then the Home Guard were then sufficiently trained to take, to yeah. take their, to take and their place. And this is where the sort of I think the, the the good thing about Chris's Chris's insight is that you know it does show the weakness of the Home Guard. Yeah, it, they're, they're they're not as po popular memory wants to present them as this brave little fighting force. Yeah, they're not they're not really that properly effective in my opinion at least till probably about early nineteen forty two, late forty one, really. 
in Northern Command, um, so I, my, my well, the majority of my research has looked at East Yorkshire, which was within Northern Command, mm. and that's exactly it. It's not until autumn 1941 that they start to draw the Home Guard into uh, mobile reserves and yeah. working alongside the regs and TAs. Um, and as I always say, that is one story of a wider story. You know, this changed all over the place. Some areas, they never ended up taking an active role. In other areas, they were relatively quick to be deployed. Mm. You know, it's there's no one-size-fits-all story. I'm just on the Home Guard chapter of my book, and I've just I've done a thing about um, there's a, in Portsmouth, the Home Guard took over, well, Home Guard, the LDV. Actually, they called themselves yeah. the DDV, the Dockyard Defence Volunteers. Nice. Um, they took they took over almost immediately, but because they had access to weapons from the navy, and also yeah. almost everyone, or in fact, they were all ex navy or ex military. So immediately they all knew what they were doing. You give them yeah. a weapon, and they could. So so you're right. In some cases, they came in immediately, took charge of a really crucial point to free up regulars to go and do other stuff. But in other areas, yeah. they didn't. You know, it, it mm. was a completely different story. Exactly. And this is where local research comes into telling this story and highlighting this context, because everything, everything focuses on the national. And you can't you can't build the story up of this period by looking at, a, you know, the entire country because it's not possible. Yeah. Um, but again, that's a story for another time. But this is the power of um, people getting involved with this type of stuff locally is you can tell your local story, which has never been researched before, which is massively massively cool so yeah in contrast with the uh regulars and the tas the home guards um were given responsibility for less important nodal points so minor towns and villages uh the immediate locality and in a lot of cases vulnerable infrastructure like the factories where people are learn um are working yeah. pits things like that places where you didn't need the regulars to defend them because they were either not an immediate threat of during an invasion or just didn't need a body of professional troops to defend like a crossroad in the middle of nowhere for example well, well and so, also also with those kind of nodal points and factories and your local mm, villages you've got such an intimate understanding of exactly the entire area that you may not be as well trained you know this is where the orc stuff comes in but you, you know yeah. it so intimately that you know where the position on the road is to set that trap yeah exactly but, you know it, it, you, yeah. you've got that you've yeah. got that local knowledge so actually regulars aren't aren't as necessary in those in those cases exactly and um you know one of the actual early roles of the um home guard was to liaise with the uh, regulars and tas coming into their area to guide them and act as guides wasn't it as well and mm. that's um vitally important role for the home guard and it's something that needs to be acknowledged more than these mythical roles that they were given you know yeah yeah, yeah. As, you, as you said you know, they had this intimate knowledge of their area yeah exactly i think i mentioned it to chris before we started recording that i've been reading a book on the shropshire home oh, guard yeah. and one of their I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the book to hand, um, but it's a, a section on the immediate like uh, uh, orders of the day. And it says, yeah. and it's if an enemy force is spotted to observe them and report to the local regular army that are in yeah. that area. And it's only to engage them if the, if the regular army or the TA aren't available. So yeah. That, yeah. Uh, that, I think that was written in, Probably, I think it was mid forty, late forty. Yeah, it'll be, it'll, it be, was, it'll be, it'll yeah, be fairly early, early, but yeah. and it was even then. It's they're they're not looking, they're not acting as this big force to defend Shropshire on their own. That they know yeah. that they're going to be having to work with the regulars. Yeah, their, their key yeah. role was that initial was to report and let the regulars. Yeah. And they could, I think that that uh, order was only take a shot if you're absolutely certain of a kill. Yeah. yeah. And there's, I think it's 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 good for people to realise at this point of the, what we're talking about this initial invasion fear uh time of like 40 
is yeah. that it, it, the home guard are almost they're, they're a supplemental force. They're not this. They're an added bonus. Force, they're an added bonus. Yeah. Yeah. Second line for a minor second line force mm. at the best. Yeah. Um, but it, it is worth as well highlighting that role in terms of gathering intel. And obviously today we have you know massively advanced communication systems which are in place, and you know internet communication systems, satellite communication systems, at the time they didn't have any of that. So gathering up this um, intel picture and breaking down the fog of war was a, still a key part to warfare at the time. And the Home Guard would have played a vital role mm. in building up that intelligence, local intelligence picture so that the regulars could defo- deploy effectively to counter the threat, you know, and get yeah. an idea of how many troops had, um, had uh, landed, for example. But again, it's all part of this hierarchy of defence and where these units sit in that, which is helps us to better understand how effective these defences would have been. But that role of the Home Guard initially is worth considering and then contrasting that with later on. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, by 19, you know, by 1940, we've got, at the end of 1940, you know, you've got 24 divisions in total of the home de- uh, on home defence uh, from the regs and the TAs. Obviously, we know um, the invasion didn't come in um, September 1940, so you get this kind of respite towards the end of 1940. Um, and I think the... Um, Estimation for 1940, the earliest an invasion could happen was chance would have it the 1st of April 1941 was the earliest date. Right. So that's, uh, you know, that's quite um, quite something. But you get this respite towards the end of um, 1940 and into 1941. It's by 1941 that we start to see um, this additional organisation and reorganisation of the home forces. So these units that have been pulled out of France, you know, many of them massively under-equipped, short on both troops, equipment and weaponry, um, had been able to focus on training during this respite. Um, and this was something that they had to do while they were still defending the coastline and inland areas, was find time to train and get used to, um, you know, the new form of we- uh, warfare. Because mm. it's worth remembering that, you know, the first time uh, during the invasion of France was the first time that this, you know, this turned Blitzkrieg and I'm doing the old um, inverted commas thing. It was yeah. the first time they'd seen this combined arms warfare implemented. So they were adapting to that. You know, you see in the military, um, the British Army manuals, where they've gone from First World War style trench systems in 1938. And then in 1940, late 1940, they're starting to look at um, defended localities or weapon pits and something like that. So you do see this intelligence picture building up in terms of yeah, how the yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's implemented in 1941. Uh, so 1941 is a massive time of consolidation for the home forces. We see the introduction of new weapon systems like the Blacker Bombard, which is although almost synonymous with the Home Guard. It was issued to the regulars and the TAs first. Remember that? Yep. Yeah. I'll be coming back to that later as well. Actually, there's a quite interesting one of the facts I want to finish on is uh, related to Dad's <laughs> Army. Um, so just remind me about that because it's, uh, no, I'll be it's doing more. I'll be doing more to tease an episode coming up. Ooh. I'll be doing more on the anti-tank capability of the Home Guard with... Uh, my friend Matthew Moss, who is uh, who wrote the book on the pier. So who um who better? It's a fantastic. Book. I've got fantastic. I've got a great story of my granddad and I finding a Blacker Bombardier um missile. Nice. We dug it up. Projectile, and projectile, projectile, and then put it yes, yeah. put it put it in a um started because it was rusty started hitting it with a sledgehammer to get fantastic. the rust. That's the way <laughs> yeah. to do it. It's yeah. a great. It's a great. It's a whole story. I'll tell you. Did you <laughs> set fire to it after? It's mental. We took it to the bloody. We took it to a um, uh, police museum or something. <laughs> we, no, we, t- we just t- we just turned up with it. My grand put it in a cardboard box with some um, paid newspaper around it, just in case it went off. That protect me. Thanks. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. That's um, 
So, yeah, um, if you do find unexploded ordnance, hit it with a shovel, stick it in yeah. newspaper. That's yeah. uh, that's what you need to do, yeah. <laughs> um, don't do that. No, um, Homefront history does not uh, condone hitting <laughs> any potentially live ordnance with, with shovels. shovels and, yeah. yeah, It was a sledgehammer, to be fair, not a shovel. Oh, sorry, sledgehammer. Oh, well, that, you know, that's a massive difference. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings part one of our chat on the regular army in their role in home defence in the Second World War to an end. Uh, do join us next time for part two, coming this Thursday. Don't forget to follow the Homefront History podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Thanks again from everyone here at Homefront History and we'll catch you again soon.